0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we are joined again by Robert Miller for a special Mayday episode. Hooray! Hooray! Howdy,
1: comrades. <laughs>
0: This episode is going to drop on May 4th, um, but we're recording it on May 1st, which is International Workers' Day or May Day, so we thought we would talk about the problems with workers' rights, uh, maybe some examples of things that are cool that are happening in workers' rights, and then try to come up with some hopeful stuff for the future.
1: (laughs) This is going to be a really nice episode for us, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Might be really dark. <laughs> well, eh, that's that's true too. But we have our 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 best uh, activist friend with us today, so <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know how much joy I can insert into this conversation, but I will try.
1: <laughs> I have a question, Kristen, before we get started., uh, but maybe you already planned to do this. I don't know what May Day is. It's International Workers' Day. (laughs) Is there like a history I should know to it? Because I know about Labor Day in September, which is why, honestly, at first you were like, we'll do a May Day episode. And I'm like, what's the difference between Labor Day and May Day? And I was supposed to Google it. But as you know, I fell asleep all day today. So I didn't.
0: Yep. Um, There is a history to May Day. I don't know it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, All
2: okay, right, so I guess maybe I'll interject here.
0: Hell yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
2: yeah, so May Day was sort of like, has been an International Workers' Day for, oh God, I don't actually know the date when it first started. I was just actually listening to the Seriously Wrong podcast about this. Like literally like had it on until coming on to start doing this episode. Part of it is also just like a very long tradition of spring renewal. It was, It's long been just a day of, rejuvenation and rest for working people. So yeah, it actually has a much longer history than just the sort of like labor history of it. But it started sometime in the 1800s. It's deeply connected, or it changed quite a bit and became very, or became much more popularly known after the Haymarket Affair in Chicago, um, where after a May Day protest riot, something along those lines, uh, seven anarchists were basically assassinated by the U.S. government. Uh, in retaliation for striking and being political dissidents. So that kind of popularized it. And so it's also a day to sort of like commemorate all the shit that was going on in the labor movement. Um, But yeah, as long as the labor movement has existed, it's basically been one of the days for celebration around working people. And uh, the reason actually why Labor Day is in September was deliberate because it was... They tried to drive a wedge between the communists and the socialists and other working people uh, by making Labor Day in September and then made May Day into sort of like Commie Day. Even going as far, actually, in the 1960s, in the U.S., it's a national holiday called Loyalty Day, uh, not May Day.
0: That's dystopian sounding. (laughs) It is profoundly (laughs) dystopian.
2: Um, But yeah, that's what you're dealing with when you're a labor organizer. So... Uh, May Day or International Workers Day is all about celebrating the labor movement and its martyrs and the people who are still in that fight now and the future we want to build, which is a good and cool one and uh, not the dystopian one where you pledge allegiance to a flag.
0: <laughs> That's what flag day is for.
2: There's <laughs> actually, I, it. I can't remember which article it was, but there was one that was actually pointing out all of the like very grim days of celebration that are happening in the next couple of days because of the COVID pandemic. So, for instance, April 28th is actually International Workers Memorial Day for people who died at work, uh, which obviously during the COVID-19 pandemic was a particularly grim day because we are being reminded in extremely violent and mundane ways that, uh, yeah, capitalism really does not care about us at all and is entirely about, you know, crushing human beings and turning them into money.
0: (laughs) April 28th, also my birthday.
2: (laughs) May 6th is going to be International Nurses Day, and uh, I know here in Alberta, that's going to be quite tense because nurses have been on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic at the same time that their support staff has been defunded and privatized, and doctors have been buried, and PPE has been inadequate. And for all that the government loves to applaud its uh, frontline workers, it has been giving them a raw deal, so...
1: Okay, well, I'm glad I asked that question. Thank you, Robbie. (laughs) Yes, excellent history.
2: There's not the most succinct history of it. But yeah, it has a very long tradition. It's all about workers and making sure that they know that they're appreciated. And also that we need to fight for all the victories that we have.
0: Yeah, which I feel like there's going to be a theme of the episode overall. One of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been putting together the research for this episode, and I wonder whether it might be a theme that we sort of come back to again and again. Do y'all remember Frances Perkins? <laughs> one of my favorite uh, like, labor rights people from the history of the United States. She was um, the first female secretary in um, American federal cabinet, and she was also labor secretary under FDR. And uh, one thing that she said, which is kind of interesting, because when she got um, put into the cabinet, she was a little bit of a controversial pick, not just because she didn't have a penis, but also because um, she wasn't explicitly a union organizer. She did have like strong workers' rights credentials, but wasn't a union organizer. Um, and she was uh, recorded as saying, I'm paraphrasing this, but I would much rather have a law than a union. And not that she was anti-union, but she was that was really sort of to set out her agenda, which was to get these like strong worker protection laws many of which are still the basis of worker protections in the United States. But as we'll talk about throughout this episode, those laws, like some of them, many of them still exist. Uh, Many of them have sort of like the rights have been cut back through um, a series of legal changes. And uh, the weakness of unions today in the United States, but also in Canada um, is sort of undercutting it. So it may be that she was wrong, but you need... Not only laws, although those are important, but you also need unions in order to sort of move forward progress and to retain what you have. That laws on their own aren't politically viable over the long term if you don't have union activism.
2: Yeah, that accords very well with like my experience and knowledge, too, because like the eight hour workday was actually a legal victory more than like 20 years before it was like a real victory. The reality is, is that a lot of employers don't follow the law. And are empowered to not do so, because there's not a lot of protections for workers. It's very difficult to advocate for yourself. as I've found out, it is really quite like grueling and excruciating, even when you have the law on your side. So yeah, having a union is absolutely critical and uh, is cool and good
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to get started on problems, I've got a few themes that I thought were important to cover, and then like, if you guys have things to add, or if you want to add during these themes, I think that'd be great. Um, but my first one is stagnant wages and declining union coverage. <laughs> hey, that
1: was one of mine. <laughs> stagnant yeah. wages, for sure. <laughs>
2: I mean, they're the exact same problem, as far as I'm concerned.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so, too.
0: Um, that's why I put them together. And so... I, most of the stats that I have are from the States, so hopefully you guys have some Canadian stuff. But between 1973 and 2016, uh, productivity in the United States grew at a pace that was six times faster than compensation in the United States. That stat to me is emblematic of what we're really seeing in economies really all over the industrial developed world, but like particularly in the United States, where You can see stock markets um, and like big companies, um, their profitability is really growing um, and the wealth of the very wealthy is increasing quite drastically. But one of the big problems for the for economies around the world, but especially in the United States, is that it's really not benefiting your average worker that like wages have been stagnant or in some cases even declining in real terms. So where we like have this amazing technology and these amazing improvements to productivity, but they're not benefiting most people.
2: Yeah, it's (laughs) it's really quite staggering. Um, And so much of that has to do with it just being difficult to get wage increases if you don't have an organized ability to like stop them from just giving you zeros. Yeah, because it's very consistent that, you know, since the beginning of capitalism, it has always been that... Bosses will try to get as much out of their workers as humanly possible, even inhumanly possible as like Amazon is really starting to demonstrate with the way that it roboticizes its human workers through surveillance and even the very long history of mechanization where where the machines began to set the pace for workers. And so all of the, the speed of the line had to be determined not by the ability of the people on the line, but by the machines that they were tending to. And so one of the things that I find very useful to remember about the labor movement in 2021 is that time is a flat circle and we are seeing the exact same things we've seen before happen again. So the same kind of stuff that made the slaughterhouses in Chicago that were the subject of Louis Sinclair's Jungle Book. And it's not Louis Sinclair, it's some other Sinclair.
0: No, but yes, the slaughterhouses, <laughs> oh, not a good place to work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And but like they had they faced the exact same problem of the new machines were too fast for the workers. And so that's what people organized around was just slowing down the line. And you see the same thing happening in Bessemer with their Amazon warehouse union drive. Was that one of the key demands is making sure that bosses can't just turn their workers into robots and work them past human limits. But acknowledging that That is what the bosses will do if they are allowed to do it. And so that's where all those productivity gains have gone as well, because the more they can squeeze out of a worker in a shift, they will squeeze every drop if you don't stop them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, I always like to think about it as well in terms of so working conditions have been decreasing in factory jobs since the deindustrialization of American manufacturing. And like a lot of the times that's blamed on globalization, and there are um, certain linkages to that. But I think it's also like a factory job was not always a good job. And I mean, if you look at the working conditions um, in the early industrial revolution, certainly certainly not. that factory jobs became good middle class jobs as a result of union organizing in the post-war context. So it really like we can look at the jobs that exist today, and it's not we shouldn't take technology to be the causal factor, right? It's really, what are we forcing companies to do with respect to protecting their workers? Um, Because an Amazon warehouse job could just as easily be a great middle class job where you can afford a house and um, feed your family and put your kids through college. But we just aren't these groups can't unionize, it's very difficult to unionize. um, And we don't legally um, force these to be good jobs with sort of decent working hours and safe working conditions. So instead, what you get is an Amazon warehouse where people are constantly popping Advil and can't go for bathroom breaks, you know?
2: Yeah, I actually have an interesting Canadian example for that deindustrialization phenomenon. And it's tied into globalization, but not in the sense of shipping jobs overseas as much as the way that companies have been given license to really like exploit society's most vulnerable and disenfranchised. Because one of the major changes in the Alberta slaughterhouse industry after there was a big union push and a lot of labor militancy in the 60s and 70s was that they started to move slaughterhouses away from large urban centers into small towns and then use temporary, largely foreign workforces to staff those factories. And so that is how they kind of got around the fact that there was very strong union militancy in the cities that were keeping those jobs good and decent or fighting for them to become good and decent. And the company said, okay, well, then we're just going to move to a small town and exploit largely foreign workers who don't come in, like oftentimes don't even speak English or um, are obviously not organized into a union as a re- as a result of the company's hiring practices and are, you know, genuinely treated awfully and that's now the status quo. And so you've been seeing massive amounts of deaths in these factories due to COVID and, you know, this is an entirely predictable consequence of what happens when companies are allowed to just be like, okay, We're going to abandon the unionized labor force that we had, replace it with something else that's not unionized or not as militant at least. And then you see conditions very predictably start to decline. So yeah, this isn't just like a problem in the Rust Belt. This isn't a Detroit problem. This is a problem in every city and place in Canada that does any kind of manufacturing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And even like the virtual stuff, we'll talk a little bit about like Mechanical Turk and the precariat. But um, the second half of the first theme, and I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, is declining union coverage. So how many people in the labor force are part of a union? Um, And there, there's been a a drastic decline as well. The stats for the, the United States Um, But between 1954 and 2018, the proportion of union members in the labor force dropped from 35% to 10.5%. And just to to give you a little bit more context, um, usually there's higher union coverage in public sector jobs. um, And so if you look just at private sector um, workers, union membership is about 6% in the United States today, um, and it's at its lowest point since the 1920s (laughs) We all know how the 20s ended. Wasn't a great time.
2: (laughs) This actually brings me to one of the themes that I wanted to talk about as well is that sometimes even those numbers can be a little bit misleading because we don't necessarily look at those numbers and say, okay, are they in an actual union or are they in a collective bargaining unit or a professional association that counts as a union in a vague sense but doesn't fulfill a lot of the same functions? One of the the things that was brought to my attention was that, for instance, the Alberta Teachers Association is nominally the union for teachers in the province, but it also includes the superintendents and principals. And so you were in the same union, I'm doing air quotes, as your boss, which makes it a lot more difficult to actually push for real change and to advocate in a way that is sensible because you've got not only a voting block but also just that like person in the same room as you as you're trying to discuss how your working conditions are inadequate uh, as the person who is setting those working conditions. And so even a lot of public sector unions, I think this is a similar problem where you you have a collective bargaining unit because the government has mandated that, but it's not structured in the way that we would think of for a union that's built around protecting the interests of frontline workers or the people who are like actually on the job site doing the job if it also includes their supervisors. And so even public sector unions can be deeply weakened by this. So it's not only just the raw numbers of participation that we need to be looking for but also are they in quality unions that actually have a democratic membership base? Or are they in professional bureaucratized unions where there is actually a division between the leadership and the rank and file? I think of my experience, um, maybe I shouldn't name which union in particular, um, just so that I'm not like randomly spinning libel on your podcast in case they're listening. (laughs) But within the construction trades, it's kind of like well-acknowledged that a lot of the unions, again, in air quotes, are really little more than temping agencies Like they will negotiate with companies to set sort of like a standard wage across a union job, but they won't actually go to bat for their workers. They don't provide reasonable amounts of job security or even like on-site safety is not one of the things they're concerned with. They're largely concerned with making sure that they're farming out available labor to whatever companies are hiring. And so you can even look and say like, okay, that's a significant portion of the labor force that would be counted as you know, union labor in the private sector. But are they really part of a union in the way that we're thinking in terms of you know, advocating for their rights and standing up and doing something political? Or is it just a professional association that happens to fulfill some of those functions?
0: Definitely. Yeah. There's like a, a, a vast gulf in terms of the most progressive um, unions, and especially those that are fighting um, for sort of like, not just narrow collective bargaining goals, although that's important too, but also for, you know, things that benefit society overall, like affordable housing, higher minimum wage laws and things like that, versus the more sort of reactionary unions that are not so great. <laughs> have you are you guys um have you guys been members of unions or are you?
2: I actually have not been a member of a union since grad school um, and the grad student union at the u of a was not great.
1: I have never been a part of a union I don't think although it's i mean honestly I've had so many jobs who can remember them all, <laughs> but I don't think I've ever been part of a union.
0: that's fair. I've been on strike before that was an interesting experience <laughs> um but yeah, it's um Unions are nice. They allow you to, like, um, you can know you're protected and file grievances if there are issues, um, but certainly unions are not always perfect. But um, I do want to highlight that even a bad union is still is still good um, because they they at least give you some like recourse when when like your company breaks the law. And actually, um, in order to prevent companies from like uh, workers from unionizing, a lot of companies are sort of just flagrantly violating the law in the United States.
2: And in Canada, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. But um, I I think it's more stark in the United States. I, I couldn't find a stat on this for Canada, but there was a 2009 study that was done which found that. Uh, Union supporters uh, were illegally fired at 34% of companies where management of was the union. So (laughs) that's like a third of companies. (laughs) And like, it's because um, I was digging into this a little bit more. Um, I read this book called uh, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor by Stephen Greenhouse, really recommend that for people. Um, but one of the things that he talks about in the book is that the penalties for breaking the law um by firing union supporters is like they're they're so minor. You just have to, I mean, first of all, there's like very little enforcement. But even if you even if enforcement happens, it's just that you have to pay that worker like a small amount of severance pay. Uh, <laughs> so like it's definitely in your financial interests if you're a union opposing company to just fire top union, um, promoters. And then like, probably that stops a union vote from happening because everybody else gets scared. So it's pretty fucked up.
2: Yeah. Uh, the Bessemer union drive has been really interesting for just like putting on display, just how flagrantly companies are willing to break the law when it comes to busting union drives. Like, um, there was one example of, Someone working at that warehouse who basically just received a text and says, like, if the union goes through, we're going to cut your health benefits. And it's like, it's just raw intimidation and like straight up violence. They're willing to do literally anything. And there's very little recourse to stop them from doing it. There's a book that was like the confessions of a union buster. I can't remember the exact title. And yeah, it's just the whole context of union busting is just lying and intimidation and deceit.
0: Yeah. And that that I think uh, gives rise to um, my a, a second theme that I had, which is that there's been a growth in the industry of union avoidance since the 1970s. So in the United States, employers spend roughly $340 million every year on what are called union avoidance consultants. And they basically, um, people from Firms that will come in to help a company prevent a union drive from being successful. So some common tactics for union avoidance consultants is um, they're called captive audience meetings. They're basically mandatory anti-union meetings that will take place on work time and where you don't have like an alternate pro-union voice. As well, posting anti-union posters, instructing managers to tell workers um, that they'll lose their jobs if they vote to unionize, and other tactics like that that aim to disincentivize people
1: from voting to unionize a shop. I can jump in here, actually. I worked at Walmart in 2008. Famously union-busting company, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And part of the onboarding, like the training that you do when they hire you, is to sit through like an hour of basically anti-union discourse. I don't know that they do this anymore. I obviously haven't worked there in over a decade. But at the time, I remember thinking, oh, I was like 17. I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, unions sound terrible. Why would anyone join a union?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a really interesting documentary. um, It's called American Factory. I don't know if either of you have seen it, but um, it – if people are interested in, like, seeing how union avoidance works, American Factory, I don't know how they got the permissions for this, but they they look at the opening of this, um, this company called the Fuyao Glass America Factory in Dayton, Ohio. And some of it at the beginning is just like, oh, how does, like, foreign investment from China work? But it quickly becomes... This documentary about like workers that want to unionize because it's not the working conditions aren't safe, like they're not getting raises, and the company's dumping chemicals down drains and things like that. And the American workers are like, what the fuck? And so a lot of them are trying to unionize. And you can see like many of these union avoidance tactics at play. They have those mandatory meetings, uh, They actually had an interview with one of the um, one of the managers that's showing photos on his phone. He's like, that guy, that guy's a union organizer. He won't be here in two weeks. Um, and like everybody gets fired. And then the unionization um, vote ends up failing in the end. And there's an interview in it with one of the workers that she didn't say how she voted, but I think she voted no. And she's sort of a young worker that was like, yeah, um, I was just afraid that we were going to lose our jobs, basically. Uh, so it it shows you how like these coordinated strategies can really make it tough for for workers that don't have a lot of power and also don't like have as much information um, because they're getting this like anti-union voice like shoved down their throats and all of these threats. You can understand why people wouldn't want to unionize, even if it would ultimately be in their best interests.
2: Yeah, and like sometimes these are really like grim and awful and dystopian, and sometimes they're also just dumb. Like a lot of Amazon's efforts to crush the union in Bessemer were just like immediately ridiculed. Um, one of the things that was both dystopian and very poorly done was that they actually created a snitch line. Like they actively promoted a web service where you could go on and report one of your coworkers for union organizing, which is
0: super fucked
2: up, up. but they also did it really poorly. So they didn't put any like limits on how much text you could put in. So people just started like sending them vast quantities of text. Like I ended up automating a bot to send them the entirety of Marx's capital volume one every couple of minutes. And you're just like this is totally absurd, but also like how in the fuck is that legal?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's sort of this like mix of some things are already illegal and either there's not enough enforcement or the penalties aren't high enough, but then there are also many things that worker that like companies can legally do right now because our labor laws aren't strong enough. But I want to talk about a third theme, which is um, I've I've lumped together the rise of precarious work and also declining working conditions. Um, So I think it's really important to consider both. Obviously, one of the the discussions has been around um, independent contractors and should like Uber drivers be counted as employees or not. Um, And it seems as though the courts are slowly saying, yeah, they're employees, Uber Come on, man. (laughs) But but in the meantime, a lot of people are being exploited. Um, And also, in sort of connection with that, there's a lot more um, temporary work that's happening. And you can see as that's occurring, um, there's increasingly a split within the left. And this plays itself out in left wing party politics, where there's a division between unionized workers who have relatively good worker protections um, and a a growing segment of the workforce that is an ununionized precariat. Because a lot of traditional left parties are drawn from labor movements, a lot of them put at the center of their priorities, these unionized workers. And of course, that's like not to treat these parties as a monolith. Certainly there are a lot of people that have their attention on the precariat and on um, sort of part-time workers or non-contracted workers, but it's a real problem (laughs) from the perspective of progressive politics.
2: Yeah. Um, It was actually one of the themes that I was looking at as well was that someone once pointed out to me that unions are oftentimes the right wing of the labor movement, which was like a very like weird thing for me to hear at first, but then started to make a lot of sense Um, in a large part because it's just, it's one of the ways that or it's very easy for a union to, in my terms, kind of get lost in fighting for its own workers rather than creating a broader struggle. So one of the things that I connect very deeply to that like rise of the precariousness and the sort of erosion of unions has been the sort of like siege mentality that I don't know, probably started to set in before I was born. But as soon as unions stopped like fighting, not just for their own members, but for everybody else who was working, whether they were unionized or not, Then you start to see that unions become increasingly marginalized. Like it is much easier to talk shit about unions if they only ever protect their own membership rather than fighting for broader struggles. Or even if unions have gotten embroiled in conflicts with uh, just like dealing with issues of race, uh, which was very common in the 1920s and 30s, that like one of the major splits in the progressive movement was the fact that most of the unions were white and were like actively trying to prevent people of color from joining their workplaces.
0: Yeah, and actually, um, like, American labor law still excludes certain segments of the economy, such as agricultural workers from those sorts of progressive laws. And a lot of the discussion at the time was because, basically, to get these laws passed, you had to placate white Southerners who didn't want farm workers to have workers' rights because they were predominantly black, you know? So definitely race is really entangled with these fights. But you're right that, like, as when unions become more narrowly focused or the thing that we haven't talked about yet, that some unions, um, like, legitimately have been corrupt and very unfair for workers, um, that that undermines the movement as a whole as well. So definitely. Um, I do also want to talk a little bit about, I mean, we've talked about Amazon's, uh, working conditions, but I wanna, I wanna read a quote that, um, it's from a New Yorker article that was looking at a memoir called On the Clock by, um, Emily Gwendelsberger. And um, so I'll just quote that now. At Amazon, a handheld scanner tells Gwendelsberger what to do at every moment and tracks her even into the restroom. A training video warns of the work's de- physical demands. This is going to hurt, and she's disconcerted that painkillers are dispensed for free. But soon she writes, I pop Advil-like candy all day. Her shifts last 11 and a half hours, and she gets home too drained to even think of writing or reading. One day, slumped in front of the Muppet Christmas Carol, she finds herself laughing almost involuntarily at the realization that Scrooge literally had a better time-off policy than Amazon. (laughs) Uh, that really got me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Speaking of like our modern dystopia, it was actually one of the things that kept on cropping up when I was reading about Bessemer was the way that like technology has not really helped us in a lot of ways and has in some ways even been counterproductive. So like I mentioned at the beginning that like one of the early labor struggles was around making sure that people weren't, you know, m- roboticized according to the needs of the machines they were tending. It's also like looking at the amount of surveillance technology that Amazon was deploying against union organizers uh, was pretty grim in terms of the ways that like technology, which was dreamed of as this emancipatory force in the world, is ending up being used in the exact opposite
1: way. Yeah, well, something else that's really telling about that quote, Kristen, is also Something we really haven't talked about, which is if you work your people so hard that they're too tired to think when they go home, they won't be able to organize anything.
0: It's a tough tightrope to balance, though, because if they're so exhausted that they get angry, that's often what Sparks' union drives,
1: you know? I suppose. I just think about, like, how tired I am, and I'm like, oh, can you imagine organizing a union as well? (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: true. It's very true. someone who
2: finds organizing fun, like, I guess I'm just a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and it's also that um the way in which work happens today um it makes it a lot more difficult to get the solidarity that you need to have a union drive so um i mean first of all it's just very it's a lot easier for companies to credibly threat that they're going to move because labor isn't nearly as mobile as capital is so like the first walmart to unionize uh before the like After the union vote, but before the union got a collective bargaining agreement, the Walmart, like, moved out of the town in Quebec that it was in. So (laughs) that's one point. But the other one is that, like, um, increasingly independent contractors are not really in contact with other employees, so it makes it very hard to gain any kind of solidarity. And this is, like, one of the success stories that I wanted to talk about, but I'll just spoil it here. So Mechanical Turk is this... um, platform where you can accept low paid uh virtual work like answering surveys or transcribing stuff and it's super fucked up and dystopian but one of the big problems is that like uh workers feel so isolated because um you know they really don't know who else is participating as as workers in Mechanical Turk and things like that and so there's this platform that was developed um, called Dynamo that's trying to bring together workers and so it's just to me, it's really interesting. You have like these new challenges posed by technology and by the like lack of solidarity because workers aren't together in a lot of contexts now, but people find a way, you know? Uh, so that gives me some hope.
2: Yeah. There was actually an interesting repost to that kind of issue though. Um, Jane McAlevey was writing in The Nation about Bessemer and identified that one of the reasons why the Bessemer drive wasn't going to be successful was that they relied so much on digital organizing and actively avoided doing like physical in-person union drives, Um, in part because of COVID and in part because they were worried about retaliation from Amazon. And so there was this kind of like this idea that it's like, oh, there's these new technological frontiers that we can use to connect with one another, but they didn't actually materialize and may have in the end hindered the effort. So... Technology, once again, very mixed bag. Though, again, like a digital service, there's no way that you'd be able to like knock for Mechanical Turk.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So you need both probably. Um, And Mechanical Turk workers might be fucked, but they're doing the best they can. Do you guys have any other problems before we go on to the more optimistic side?
2: Yeah, I was looking through my notes and the only thing that I still have left that was sort of like a theme was uh, another vibe that I also got from like one of the reasons why the environmental movement has had like a really tough time making change is because I don't know when exactly this happened, but at some point people decided to stop doing like actual direct physical interruptions of work. Uh, And like striking became very sort of like uh, weird and uh, scary. And people tried to like focus on winning these fights in the courts or winning them in the legislature through like pressuring political parties. Um, I know this has been a common problem with how I see a lot of Alberta unions organizing is that they've taken this tact of being like, no, we're going to be polite and nice and we're going to play by the rules. And it's like, no, you you can't fucking do that. You have to actually do work stoppages. Like direct action gets the goods um, and people have got to get used to the idea again that you know, the only way that Amazon is going to get a union is if Amazon, like warehouse workers go on strike. Like the same thing goes, you're going to get zeros from your government, whether they're progressive or right wing, unless you go on strike. Uh, There is no, there is no way to play by the rules because the rules are stacked against you. You have to actually fight. So yeah, let's move over maybe into like some of those good things we're seeing.
0: All right, success stories. Does anyone want to start?
1: (laughs) Uh, I'll go. Um, I don't know how how I feel about this recent success, but minimum wage will finally hit $15 Canadian an hour in British Columbia after years of building to it slowly. I think Alberta and Ontario, I want to say, they hit theirs in 2018 because that was the goal that was laid out. And at the time that they laid out that goal – British Columbia said, oh, we'll do ours by 2021. And it's like, what? What is taking three years longer, BC? But we're finally there. And the living wage in Vancouver is $19 an hour. So, you know, (laughs) I don't know if that's a win.
0: In Toronto, it's 22, and the minimum wage is like fourteen fifty or something like that.
2: Guys, we're supposed to be talking about successes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but it is, it is legitimately still a success. Um, so the Fight for 15 was also one of mine, um, but my research had focused more on um, the activism. Essentially, the Fight for 15 as a movement started in 2012 with um, a group of fast, wo- fast food workers in New York City, so um, the median fast food pay um, was like eight fifty an hour, basically in the United States, um, and like working conditions were bad. There's chronic understaffing, things that anyone who has worked in fast food will be totally familiar with: shitty working conditions, and for many people, like it means you're stuck in a sometimes intergenerational cycle of poverty. And so um, fast, fo- fast food workers finally sort of got fed up and started doing um, a bunch of strikes and protest actions and things like that. And it became an international movement. Um, here's a stat that I learned that was pretty fucked. So 52% of fast food workers and their families in the United States received some form of public um, like assistance. So that includes things like Medicaid food stamps and um, earned income tax credits. So that's 52% of fast food workers. And just to give you a point of comparison, about 25% of the overall workforce gets those kinds of supports. So if you think about it, that's like a huge subsidy for the fast food industry because they're not paying their workers enough to actually get by. So those workers are having to rely on government assistance.
1: I feel like that's an argument for right-wing conservatives who don't want to shell out money for the poor. It's like, well, then maybe you should make laws that force them to be taken care of by their companies. Like this is this on either side of the political spectrum, I feel like is something that everyone could be on board with. No, they just want them to starve.
0: Yeah, I was going to say the starvation incentive is like a huge part of um I'll put this in quotes, free market capitalism because markets are always institutionally embedded, hashtag grad school. Uh,
2: Um, Yeah, and I actually, when you mentioned that, because I'd forgotten that Fight for 15 started in 2012. Um, So I just like pulled up a little inflation calculator. uh, And so yeah, Fight for 15 in 2012 is now Fight for 1750 in 2021.
1: And that's American. That's US dollars. (laughs) I love how Canada turned around and was like, yeah, we'll fight for 15 too. And it's like, that's not how the exchange rate works, though.
0: I mean, at the time, it was pretty much parody, but now you're right. Anyway, yeah, the fight for 15. Um, so yeah, it's still a fight only for 15 it hasn't kept up with inflation. Arguably, they maybe should have picked a moving target. Although part of the fight for 15's um, advocacy was also for unionization. Um, so it wasn't just that minimum wage, but they were kind of unique in... um setting this sort of like workers movement that is partially about collective bargaining and unionization, but very clearly targets, um, the law. Um, so like not internal to this sort of like management worker relationship, but actually focusing on political structures. So they were interesting in that regard, and they did have some success in raising the minimum wage. There are a bunch of states that have agreed to gradually raising the minimum wage, um, as far as I was able to find, there are no states in the United States that are at $15 now, but there are some that have pledged to get there. Um, and then there are some like cities that have passed local ordinances that have $15 an hour minimum wage. So Seattle was the first in the country. And then there are other cities like New York and LA and Washington DC that have it. But in general, I would say... The fight for 15, hugely successful in framing a debate, like around the world, minimum wage at $15 an hour is something people talk about that like they didn't talk about before 2012. Um, And also like now there's this big discussion in the United States to set the federal minimum wage there. Uh, But if you would look at like just did they get the minimum wage up to $15 an hour? It's a decade later. And no, (laughs) no, they haven't.
1: I have a question: If all of the fast food workers starve, who will serve rich people their hamburgers?
0: Uh, <laughs> s- still those same people <laughs> They'll just be on food stamps, like they already are. Yeah,
1: no, I know. I was just like, I've just been still mulling over that, like that's that that free market thing that people care so much about. I'm like, but wait,
0: yeah, the idea, <laughs> like the idea of the starvation incentive when you um. If you think about like what um, the like ideology is, uh, the idea is basically that you can't have a baseline society where everybody has a right to all of their basic needs being met, that you need people to have to work in order to feed themselves. This is like the free market ideology. Um, And so like things like UBI really get in the way of that, (laughs) that idea. Um, But if you think about humans as being sort of geared towards flourishing and you think about like how universal basic income has caused people to like, reach out and get better education and do a lot of things that we think are good and like proactive. Um, there's like a huge argument against the starvation incentive as something that's ineffective, but also as something that's like, obviously grotesque for human rights. So
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've, I've taken us off on a tangent, but I, I was just like, so horrified. Yeah,
2: it's not really a tangent to talk about how awful bosses are. It's a great reason to unionize.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But no, I'll talk a little bit more about the um, fight for 15. I've got a little bit more on this. Um, So one cool thing that's come out of the fight for 15 is this organization called fast food justice. And it's basically a workers rights organization. Um, It's not a union, but it is an organization that pushes for workers rights in like political realms. Um, And it's kind of a cool example of a new model of labor organization. Um, so essentially, fast food justice, the way it works is employees can, de- can choose voluntarily to deduct money from their paycheck and have it sent to their organization. And there is a New York City law that made that possible. But it's kind of interesting, because it works sort of like union dues, except it's voluntary, which, I don't know, I think union dues are really important. And Work more workers should just be unionized. But when you're facing an American context where increasingly in states you're not allowed to have mandatory union dues, like, this is a a nice stopgap alternative, <laughs> you
2: know? Hmm, that is interesting.
0: I'll, I'll also just, sorry, just one last thing. I'll briefly say Canada has its own version of this movement called 15 in Fairness because we don't have our own political discourse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... <laughs> So, yeah, as Kyla pointed out, um, there are a few provinces that are working towards $15 minimum wage. Uh, Nunavut and Alberta are the only two that have gotten there yet, but BC is set to imminently. Oh, I was
1: giving credit to Ontario instead of Nunavut. Deepest apologies, (laughs) Nunavut. I think Ontario is pledged to get there eventually, but they're not there yet.
2: I actually have to wonder what the living wage in Nunavut is, though, before I celebrate their $15 minimum wage.
0: Yeah, it's $16 there, and I don't think that it is. Enough, because everything is so expensive in the north. So expensive.
2: Um, but yeah, um, for successes, uh, most of, or my big one is local. Earlier in the year, a whole bunch of support staff for AHS did a wildcat strike.
0: AHS Alberta Health Services.
2: Yeah. Um, so the current government is planning on and has already started to privatize things like laundry and cleaning services in hospitals terrible, terrible policy. But uh, yeah, so the union that represented them wasn't really acting fast enough for a lot of the workers. So they just did a wildcat strike and people just walked off the job. And uh, it was the coolest thing I have seen happen in Alberta in quite some time. It was absolutely wonderful to see people just being like, the union is not the professional bureaucracy. The union is not the leadership the union is the people who are working every day in intolerable conditions. And especially in this case, we're working in poor conditions and we're also about to get pink slips. Like if nothing happened, then they were all out of a job. And there was that was inevitable at that point. And so it was good to just see people saying, you know what, if we're going to lose our jobs anyways, like the only thing to do is wildcat. And so that picket line was fascinating. It was one of the most diverse picket lines I've seen in Alberta. Again, because as I mentioned at the start, like there's been a large trend towards making a lot of the jobs that make our society run that are dirty and unpleasant be done by, you know, foreign workers, uh, new arrivals to Canada. Um, There was one woman from Uganda who was telling me about how she would punch a cop if she had to. Uh, Because back in Uganda, that's what you did when you went on strike, because it was like the police were there and they would kill you. So it was a real genuine fight. And so she was here bringing that fire to the picket lines in Alberta, which I super appreciated. So yeah, I think there is a great possibility for labor militancy. Um, All we need to do is just keep keep making sure that that is front and center in our minds that we don't allow ourselves as that picket line ended up sort of folding to management's uh, desire to do this peacefully. And now they're all getting their pink slips and nothing was done. So um, the Wildcat itself was super cool and awesome.
1: Oh, so was that Wildcat strike not successful though?
2: It was not a full success, no. But I think it is one of the things that was like a glimmer of hope for me in otherwise grim times.
0: And you have to think about, it, like, Kyla, with a lot of the the biggest union successes that we've seen throughout history, like, these are super messy processes. And in some cases, there are, like, two failed strikes first, and then there's, like, a six-year strike that happens, and it's really unpleasant the whole time. But then there's a watershed. So um, it's really hard to measure to measure success at a particular point in time for workers' movements because it's not, like... It's not that simple, you know, Um, like you'll face barriers after barrier after barrier until suddenly you get what you're asking for, you know?
2: Another cool Made in Alberta success in the making, or just a thing that I think is very cool and more uh, unions and labor organizing should look at, is that the government is rolling out a K-6 curriculum review, which has been absolutely fucking atrocious, Like, it is just a garbage curriculum.
0: It was, like, basically copy-pasted from, uh, like, uh, an evangelical American think tank, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and Wikipedia, too.
0: Well, sure, because they had to try to adapt to Canadian content. Yeah, they
2: they legitimately (laughs) plagiarized sections of their curriculum, which is (laughs) staggering.
0: Well, isn't one point on the curriculum is, like, locate these two places on an Alberta map, and they're both, like... From Saskatchewan or in yeah. Alberta,
2: yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the sort of thing that I think is very cool about this is a that like a lot of teaching locals have rejected the curriculum and refused to be a pilot project, but that there's actually a grassroots movement to bring it up at the ATA's AGM um, to actually do a non-confidence vote in the government from the teachers' association and a non-confidence in the curriculum. And so it's like that kind of stuff is very cool. It doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily need to like go on strike to be able to do like real militant action, but also just because like it's happening from a grassroots level. Like you have extremely conservative towns in rural Alberta that were going to be the first to be piloting who were also the first to say, hell no, we're not going to do this. And I think the more that people exercise that power and realize that it's like you don't have to deal with this shit. You can fight back. Every time I see people fighting back, I'm like, that is a success. That is something that's good, even if it doesn't pan out um, immediately.
0: Especially when you use like, um, issues that can galvanize a wider swath of society. like The curriculum, it has pissed a lot of people off. Uh, like A lot of parents are mad. A lot of people who like, don't traditionally see themselves as political. But they really care about how, like, their kids' future. So I think it is kind of an interesting issue from that perspective. And that also makes me think of um, paid sick days seems to be having a moment in Ontario.
1: Yeah, that was one of the ones on my list was, hey, isn't uh, Premier Doug Ford giving everybody three days of sick time or something? His (laughs) plan sucks, but it's still paid sick leave is
0: having a moment in Ontario because... Um, paid sick leave. There are two provinces in Canada that have it and also federal, um, employees have it. The programs both kind of suck. Like the PEI program, it exists, um, all the time. They're not just COVID programs, but you get one paid sick day, two paid sick days, I think. Um, and you only get it after you've worked for, for five years. Like, (laughs) So, like, the one of the problems with the Ontario one is that it is just a COVID program. But, like, it is really interesting to note, like, one of the things I find really interesting is that doctors are traditionally not seen as, like, a huge friend of labor. Not to, like, over-characterize, but, like, in a lot of cases, doctors are, they predominantly vote center-right parties. They typically aren't sort of, like... Union militants. But throughout the COVID pandemic, um, a lot of doctors have been arguing that um, there needs to be introduced mandatory um, paid sick leave. Um, And it has gotten popular to the point in Ontario that basically the Ontario government got to the point where they were, they had to introduce paid sick leave. Otherwise, the only other real solution was going to be the premier resigning, um, because Ontarians were like legitimately that upset. Um, and part of it is like a 13 year old died, um, because her, one of her family members got sick at work and then the whole family got sick and she died. Um, and her mom died and this like poor father. Um, but also like a lot of the pandemic has been happening in these areas outside of the, like outside of Toronto core, um, in places like Brampton and Mississauga and Scarborough. Um, where there are a lot of warehouse workers. So um, Peel region, which has had like a lot of problems throughout the pandemic, is often seen as the logistics center of Canada. Something like 40% of packages that go anywhere in Canada go through Peel region. And so these are like a lot of workers that have been classed as essential, but also get shitty pay and don't have any sick leave. And so a lot of them have been getting sick, and they're also disproportionately racialized. So, like, as the pandemic has gotten worse, particularly in the third wave where it's been really targeting these younger essential workers, that galvanized this political moment that, like, yeah, the current Ontario plan is terrible. It's limited. There aren't enough sick days. um, It Like, there needs to be more. But I think going forward, you can't put back in the box this idea that paid sick leave is something that workers need. And I think increasingly it will become the mainstream, um, on political party platforms and crucially centrist political party platforms, uh, because that's how you get things passed in Canada. <laughs> so I'm, I'm optimistic that we may have mandatory paid sick leave in more provinces in the next five years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. Cause like I had them privately with my con- like in my contract, and. Um, And yeah, they're super important. Like even just to not get my coworkers sick with the flu or the cold. Like I fucking hate when people come into work with the flu and I'm just like, go home. Like I don't, I don't want to get sick. And so I feel like for everyone, it's just a good idea to have paid sick leave.
1: Speaking as somebody who has gone to work with the flu because there was no paid sick time and I had to pay rent, yes, please, (laughs) because I also don't want to be the person that Robbie's side-eyeing like a monster because I am a monster. I'm like getting my coworkers sick. It's awful. And I obviously, after living through a pandemic, will never do it again. But I fully recognize why other people do, you know? Yeah, if you've got to make rent.
2: Also, you are not the monster. Your boss is the monster. (laughs) Just to clarify.
1: Thank you, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Do you guys have other successes? I've got one more. I am I am out. You guys are covering it beautifully for me, but I, I think is it this tomato thing that you fell into?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I'm going to talk about it too much because I legit want to do a full episode on it. But uh, do you guys know, um, is there um, a state that you can think of that's like really big for tomatoes? I say this is a question that I would not have been able to answer, but I'm
1: curious if you guys can. Uh, maybe California, they grow everything, don't they?
2: <laughs> legit, legit. Um, I want to almost say like New Mexico.
0: No, it's Florida's the big tomato what? state. Really. Yeah. <laughs> but both huh. good guesses, way to pick the south end of the country. Good good instincts. Um, so yeah, um, Immokalee, Florida is um, it's a community where there are a lot of American tomatoes that are grown. Um, I don't have stats on what proportion, but a lot of tomatoes are grown there. And as people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with, when it comes to agricultural workers, you often see things like forced labor, low pay, wage theft, sexual assault, generally bad and unsafe working conditions. And so that certainly in the 1990s, I mean, I still think to a large extent it's true today, but it was particularly bad in the 1990s. And so in 1993, um, a bunch of the, um, tomato growers, um, and like recognizing that also a lot of these are like, um, temporary workers with like, um, precarious status. Um, so they formed an organization called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers or CIW. And it's basically an organization run by farm workers that is trying to improve human rights. So not formally a union, but like a a union adjacent organization. Um, And so they spent some time in the 90s trying to target tomato growers, and they didn't have a lot of success. Um, But in 2001, they thought, hey, there are some big food retail companies that buy a lot of tomatoes and that are trying to get cheap tomatoes all the time. Why don't we target them? They seem to care about their brands. And so their first target was Taco Bell. (laughs) So in 2001, they start this big campaign against Taco Bell. And basically the idea um, behind this campaign, which was called the Campaign for Fair Food, the idea was that they were going to have three different sort of demands. One was uh, that these buyers would support a wage increase by paying additional an additional penny per pound of tomatoes. So they'd pay more for tomatoes. Second, that they would um, have a human rights code of conduct that they would hold their um, tomato growers to. And third, um, that workers would play an important role in monitoring and enforcing the agreements that were established. So Taco Bell at first is like, no, (laughs) we're not going to listen to you, tomato growers. Um, But... Uh, They have sort of like a series of campaigns that it was very multifaceted, but it included things like student groups would do campaigns on campus to try to get Taco Bell off campus. And there'd be like a boycott campaign. They worked with faith groups. They it was um, a really sort of wide ranging consumer targeted campaign. Um, And eventually um, in 2005, Taco Bell um, agreed to the CIW's um, demands. And so. So the CIW then moved on to other targets, notably McDonald's and Burger King. Um, and now they have what's called the Fair Food Program, which basically institutionalizes these agreements. So the idea is that you have these food retailers that have exceeded to demands because of boycott campaigns, and they are now participating in a program that um, ensures certain human
1: rights standards and pay. So uh, I think they're pretty cool. (laughs) That's rad. And I love that this organization looked at the fast food giants and was like, who's the weak link in this chain? (laughs) And went straight for Taco Bell. (laughs) 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 Well, I
0: think a lot of it, too, was like a lot of tomato farm workers are like Latinx. Um, And so they were like, hey you know what's a company that is playing off this, like, Mexicana narrative? Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> we could really hurt their brand by making it seem like they're being mean to Hispanic people. Which, of course, like, the the Immokalee, like, tomato workers were experiencing just, like, really horrendous conditions. So it wasn't like it was an overblown argument. Certainly they had a lot of justification behind it. But it makes sense as to why they'd choose Taco Bell then, right? Yeah, totally. Anyways, I just think they're super cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's that's super cool.
0: Do we want to move on to the future? Yeah. Yeah, um I thought we'd talk about um do you guys have any reasons for optimism, like things that you
1: think are getting better? I just wrote UBI UBI (laughs) UBI three times nice, uh, (laughs) which is something that has been getting a lot of traction in political discourse this year, especially especially in Canada. Thank you to the uh, the SERB uh, payments that were given out by the government to help people who've been affected by job loss during the pandemic. And I'm getting it in like leaflets from my politicians. It's amazing. And shout out to my man Jugmeet Singh who's been advocating for it for quite some time. But yeah, I think we need a universal basic income. And I think it's a conversation that is legitimately being had now.
0: Yeah, definitely. The, um, the liberals, like the centrist party in Canada, just voted for a motion in favor of it. Who knows if it'll actually get into their platform, but if it did, it would be huge.
1: And then I also wrote for the future, since we don't need to talk too much about universal basic income, anybody who's listening to this podcast who isn't already in favor of it, go to our website. Now link to some amazing uh, sources on that. Or you can talk about it. There's, it's, it's everywhere right now. So I don't think we need to really go into it too much. Or we could do a whole episode on it, honestly. But the other thing that I wrote for the future of labor is that The automation that we're seeing right now, and we talked about this earlier in the episode, isn't always the answer, which is interesting because, you know, back in the 90s, it was. Everyone was so excited about automation and how computers were going to free us from the working day, which without a UBI, no, but with a UBI, hey, maybe. But automation, I think nowadays we're seeing maybe, ooh, we should take it with a huge grain of salt and we're still going to need people around, especially since bias exists in the programmed systems that people are writing. I'll link to some sources on that too. But people write the programs and therefore their own implicit bias is showing up in those systems. So it's something that, you know, back 10 years ago, people have been like, yeah, automation. And now people are like, ooh, automation.
2: (laughs) Yeah. There was actually a really cool take on automation uh, and machines generally, that what they are doing is they are transferring the sort of skill and expertise of a worker into like a tool of capital. Um, so I've be- I've kind of like soured on the liberate- liberatory potential of technology quite a bit over the years. And uh, I'm now very firmly in the camp of nothing will make anything suck less other than workers rising up and fighting for themselves.
0: Yeah, I don't know though. Like technology, like... Technology is just a tool, right? Um, so it can be it can be good or bad. It really depends on the ends to which humans put it. So I don't know. Um, I'm not, like, I understand automation is a big risk. And, like, there was a McKinsey study that found, like, 40% of jobs or something like that are at risk of automation. So, like, certainly it's a risk. Um, and certainly there's also, like, potential to do a lot of labor-saving things with it. Um, in ways that could harm people, but could also help them if we put in place like a three day work week. But I don't know, I think it's just all about what we do with it. We could design a society where automation wasn't a problem.
1: But like right now, what we're looking at is like your quote from the Amazon worker earlier, where they've automated, you know, the her boss's job, basically, which was which is to track her and it's not going so great. So that's one of those ones where I'm like, okay, if we're looking at the future of workers' rights, we need to look at automation and how it's being used in order to make sure that it's not, you know, putting out the implicit bias that I was talking about, but also not just like like you guys have talked about earlier, working people to death if they're still in the labor force.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: For me, the only solution for things getting better is going to be people in their workplaces, rising up, whether they are unionized or not, um, going on strike and fighting as collectives against their employers. I don't think based on my experience with progressive parties that there is any electoral solution to our problems. Uh, One of the first things that the Alberta NDP did when they got into government was legislate workers back to work uh, in Cold Lake long-term care. So, that is a party that has union membership baked into its political process, and it still uses back to work legislation as one of the very first things it does in office. Um, so, for me personally, when I'm looking at the future, the only way that this is going to get better is if you talk to your coworkers and make sure that you are all on the same page to ask them about, like, why does your day suck? Like, what could be better about your job and why won't the boss listen to your demands? Um, And start questions around like, how could we make our work suck less? Because even if you're just having those conversations and you're doing what unions did at the beginning, because one of the weird problems, I think with a lot of how we think about unions now is that there's been like 150 years of union history that sort of like clouds our understanding of what's going on but the more that i read about like current struggles and then look at what was happening literally 100 years ago there's a lot of the exact same problems and so when unions were first getting started like 120 years ago there wasn't all of this history it was just people recognizing that it was like we can't fight for ourselves in the system alone like i need someone else to be there with me I need, we need all of us together can do some really cool stuff and make our job suck less, enjoy our lives more, um, not be worked to the bone and to death uh, by our employers. And that was how the union movement started was just people saying enough is enough. They didn't know what they were doing at the time and they just did it anyways. And I think if we can recapture some of that spirit to just say, it's like, Even if it's not something like a traditional union, even if you don't actually get involved in your union, even if you go on Wildcat and don't get approval from your union to go on strike, um, talking about that as something that is a power that you have, that one of the best ways to affect change is to just not go to work. Like It is actually incredible how much power workers have in that system, but only if they work together. That as long as we are separated and as long as we are fighting on individual contracts or treating ourselves as if it's just us who's in that workplace and that's all that matters, um, conditions will continue to get worse and no amount of voting will change it.
0: I do want to disagree with a part of what you're saying. And I think like broadly, I I agree with the thrust of it, which is that you can't like just assume that a progressive political party will do what you want. But I don't think that um, the solution is to eschew party politics, that um, like you do need to push through active citizenship to get the laws in place that we need and to get the policies that we need. That like, I mean, the labor movement in the early 1900s was great, but like it wasn't until there was a watershed moment with the FDR regime that you really got the modern workplace rules that we rely on so much today, Right. So like, definitely, it needs to come from a place of active citizenship. But the political process is part of that, you know, I, that's the only pushback I would give.
2: Yeah, I think the, the the gap here is that it's like, I don't think that voting for a party is enough political engagement. It's like one of the reasons why you have that big watershed moment under FDR was because unions were Strong enough to start like putting pressure on that it was a crisis, like it was a crisis of labor militancy, and that's what makes politicians accountable. Is that I think that it's just like it's inadequate to say that voting for a politician is enough um, for real accountability. There needs to be some kind of structure outside of politics that is scary enough that they don't want to cross it. Um, and so yeah, there's very real direct engagement with our political system, but that it's workers should be building power outside of the party system for themselves so that they have a good footing to go into those negotiations. That if you build power outside of politics, if you build power through strikes and through job actions, and even just collective bargaining in a very like honest and real sense, um, then you will have the political power to influence whatever political party gets into power, or even to influence public opinion around creating a new kind of politics. So yeah, it's not don't engage. I think that is a good clarification. It's just don't engage without cards in your hand, like come to the table with something. um, And that will make it that much easier to get those political concessions that you need.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, a few suggestions for how workers can regain their power. Um, the book that I had read for this podcast had some really useful suggestions. And one um, was to put in place reasonable campaign finance limits, which um, is much more relevant to American politics than Canadian politics, although certainly, depending on where you are in Canada, campaign finance is still a problem. He also suggested um, that... We need to support more journalism on labor issues, um, that putting attention to these issues is part of the problem. Harsher penalties and better enforcement for laws that exist on the books. Also introducing laws that would reinstate collective bargaining rights and make it easier to unionize. So, for example, banning those captive audience meetings where Kyla is forced to sit through an hour about why unions are
1: bad. (laughs) And now a decade later, I'm still like, sometimes I have anti-union thoughts that I know stem from like that training. That's fucked up.
2: Yeah. In free societies, we don't indoctrinate people. That's what they always told me.
0: Well, I mean, we do all the time. (laughs) Yeah, we do
2: it all the time, turns (laughs) out.
0: But yeah, he also um, suggested introducing laws that make workers' rights more like civil rights. So... That would be things like replacing um, America's sort of at-will employment system with um, rules about just cause. And then also supporting like a change um, in the relationship between union management to be um, a model of worker-inclusive capitalism. So that could be things like union-run training programs and like having unions play a bigger role in helping to place workers or also having union membership on corporate boards. I suspect Robbie will be a little bit more skeptical of those, but I think they can be hugely beneficial. (laughs) I like the German model of capitalism. That's a good one. And I also had some suggestions for how people can help. Uh, So suggestion one is get involved with your union, if you're in a union, or with workers' rights groups in your community. So um, a couple of examples, uh, there's coworker.org, or if you're... um, If you're Canadian, Justice for Workers is another organization, or 15 in Fairness, if you'd like. You can also vote for and donate to progressive pro-labor political parties, and also get involved in those organizations to make sure they have truly pro-labor parties, uh, policies. You can sign petitions for workers' rights initiatives, so things like raising the minimum wage, introducing mandatory permanent and employer-paid sick leave. And uh, creating laws that strengthen the right to collectively bargain. You can and should also show up to protests that are opposing uh, union-busting laws um, or other protests. Uh, You can also learn about strikes and other labor actions in your area and all caps, don't cross picket lines, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, boycott union-busting companies like Walmart and Amazon Support labor journalists and news organizations, especially in your community. So one example that I thought of for this is ProPublica has fairly good uh, labor journalism. And you can also support tax justice initiatives so that governments can pay public sector workers what they are worth.
1: All right. Well, that was a lot. Nice work, team. (laughs) I I think it all kind of just boils down to you have to advocate not just for yourself, but for others. So do that. And thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us as usual, Robbie.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was lots of fun.
1: And And happy happy May Day and happy birthday to Kristen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one.